it's a it's a simple I got this from a guy by the name of John Malcoma. He's written a few books. The one like bestseller is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. That's true. No, but maybe it's the traffic makes everybody late for everything. It's not that people are late, love. The traffic. But uh, in this book, he's basically saying the reason uh, there's so much anxiety in the church and in leadership and all of that is just the pace of life. And he argues uh, uh, for this... uh, God-filled, slowing down wisdom. Essentially, it's around learning to Sabbath the soul. And he's not arguing for a a legalistic uh, return to a mechanical Sabbath. He's arguing for uh, rhythms where we slow down enough for our souls to catch up to our bodies, the words of Gordon MacDonald. And also... Uh, for us to express faith in God, because sometimes we can't slow down because we we think the universe will fall apart without me being fully present, right, manning all these bases. And uh, Sabbathing, the Israel were called to practice the Sabbath. Interesting one. He says, because you were slaves in Egypt. In other words, you were under the tyranny of that rhythm, that influence. Folk, it's no difference when we make our work the stuff we do and we don't know how to say no and 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 slow our lives down. And so John Marcoma wrote this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. My little Rigby axiom out of that book is it is impossible to follow Jesus Christ in the 21st century. <laughs> if, if, Impossible to follow Jesus in the 21st century if we live by the pace of the 21st century. All the stuff he's told us how to live in the Gospels, in agrarian society, he's not being unrealistic. He's just saying apply the principle in your more modern, postmodern, mechanical, demanding world. You've got to find the rhythms. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so we've got to find a new pace. And that's at the heart of what it means to be an intentional disciple. Can I say, that's what it means to become an intentional disciple. We have to slow down a bit. Let me be less kind. We've got to slow down a whole lot. We've got to find places for soul feasting. We've got to find places where we are renewed from being these Duracell hyperactive bunnies. You know that advert on Duracell batteries? Bunnies, the the Duracell batteries last the longest. (laughs) Ah, Kurt, such capacity. No, we slow down. It's not who can fit in the most in a day. It's who's following Jesus in the the wisest, most life-giving way. And so John Macoma, uh, outside of the book, Ruthless Elimination, uh, he, he was talking on discipleship, and I found it absolutely revolutionary. And, and, I, and I did a bit of it in the last talk when I spoke about disciple is a noun, and now we've made it a verb. I'm going to disciple people, which makes me possibly, if, we don't, if we're not very careful, we can eclipse Christ in that. So I don't want to overwork that. I'm not saying it's cast in stone. I'm just... It's a nice way to, you can't believe a people. They've got to do their own believing. Jesus. And you can't disciple people essentially because they've got to be following him in their way, in their rhythms, in the way that he's at work in their lives. And we're there as coaches in that process more than assuming the role. And what people do the moment they say, oh, so-and-so is discipling me, you've just taken Jesus' place. Not a great place to be. And then we overfunction. And we, they don't get the results. And you feel beat up on yourself because they didn't get the results because they can't get the results from you. they got to get it from Jesus. So what I learned from him in this little diagram, and I'm, I'm setting us up for a mini version of the talk that I'll send the maxi version to in Benicia. And if he needs to do another session, he can 
You can just work with the material. It's brilliant. It's not all my own, but it has got my attention in huge ways because we've had the privilege of being in the body of Christ. I think we've ministered in 43 different countries of the world. That's not a boast as much as I, I just say it's such a privilege, but we've seen a few things. We've seen too many tired pastors, exhausted churches, and we've seen churches that are just marking time. They're not going anywhere because the people actually, their best energy, best uh, uh, resources are being spent away from the church, not in and through this amazing miracle called the body of Christ. And uh, what he does is he quotes Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard says that the gospel is opposed to earning, but the gospel is not opposed to effort. And the reason we've got, to, we've got to hear that, I'm going to say it again. The gospel is opposed to earning. You can't earn or deserve your salvation. It is a gift of grace. It is a gift of scandalous, undeserved, irrational love. God finds his reason to save you and I in himself. And the work of saving you is divine effort. We are saved. That's the starting line. It's divine effort, but it's at work in your life for the rest of your life. It's not like I had this moment where God saved me. And now from now on, it's all up to me. No, divine effort is kicking in all the time. Why? Because divine effort has given us the Holy Spirit. Divine effort has given us the Word of God. Divine effort is equipping and releasing resources into our inner life in a wonderful way. And he quotes uh, Dallas Willard. I'll actually give you the, the quote. It's such a lovely, uh, it's such a lovely quote. Ah, I've lost it. It was here. We'll find it. But here's what where a lot of people emphasize this: the, you know, the saving work of God, and He's done it in all Himself in through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And Jesus died for our sins. And he was raised for our justification. And he is now the king of the kingdom. Yay! And we worship that person every day and every time we gather in his name. And we should. But divine effort, God, in saving the world, used a man called Jesus Christ. And he's bound himself to human instrumentality in Jesus. And so divine effort partners with self-effort. Self-effort. It's not self-effort thinking I'm earning anything. My self-effort is purely a response to the grace of God, the promises of God, the sufficiency of grace. The grace of God teaches me to say no to ungodliness in my sanctification journey. Who says no? The God or me? Who has a devotion here? Is it, is it all the prayers of Jesus because he ever lives to make intercession for us? Divine effort. What happens is I'm, because I know that, I am awakened to join him in his intercession, so I also pray. Christ prays, but I also pray. I read my Bible. He is the living word, but I read my Bible. Self-effort is misunderstood because we it's made to be like a cause and effect. If I do this, I'm putting effort in, then I can be guaranteed of this outcome. That's not what it is. It's this self-effort is still looking to divine effort. It's still looking to the grace of God. It's still looking to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's still looking to the sufficiency of of Christ, we're not sitting there thinking, oh, I deserve this because I put, I started reading my Bible, I started praying. We understand that everything, the fact that I'm alive is an expression of grace. When I put effort into it, it's worship. My effort is an expression of my worship of Christ, who is sufficient in all things. Now we're getting somewhere. Who wants to guess? So divine effort at work, 24-7. Self-effort in the rhythms of when I'm awake. <laughs> okay. What's this one? CE. 
Yeah, I called it community effort, but let's stick with church. Church effort. Now we've got to think about community or church. We're talking about the body of Christ. Now, here's something interesting. There's some of the grace that you and I need for our lives that I don't get directly from God. Isn't that interesting? There's something that I need is not just the product of my devotional life. As a matter of fact, if you read Paul's letter, we don't have time to do it in, in the, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he goes through all the gifts. He's arguing for this, this interdependent flow of the grace of God through the gifts of the Spirit in the body. The body, don't say, you, you know, I'm only a toe or I'm an eye and I'm an ear. Every one of them is significant. Why? Because you're doing it on behalf of the, the collective. You're not getting your self-actualization. Oh, I want to be an ear in the body because I just want to, I want to get territorial about being an ear. No, you, you, you're an ear in the body. And all of those parts are designed to function together for the good of the body. So in church on a Sunday morning, and the Lord whispers to somebody a, a prophetic word that is going to so encourage everybody. Now we know the sermon's coming. The preacher's going to do his stuff. The band is, is teaming together to team with the actual worship team, which is the congregation. And then the gifts of the Spirit are on operation, and grace starts to flow in that moment through that prophetic encouragement. Everybody gets that grace. Now, why didn't God just whisper to everybody in their ear? Because then you're a whole lot of privatized individuals that rather just stay home and make it all about individualistic me. But did you know this? That 95% of the times that Paul uses the word you in all his epistles, when he says you, 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 when he exhorts people, you do this, you do that, you, 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 it's plural. How do we read it in the 21st century? We read our Bibles and we think God's really talking to me. He's not. He's talking to all of us. And my, all I'm wanting us to see is that we never become mature, fully developed followers of Jesus. If we don't recognize the source of it all, we don't take responsibility to responding to that source, and we don't overrate our role to come to maturity as isolated parts. We affirm the whole body that we're a part of, and we turn to people on either side of us like we're going to do in a moment, and we're going to say, I'm so glad that you're in this body with me. Why don't you just say that to the person next to you? I'm so glad. Now, quickly, guys, some of you are thinking, oh, my dear, you mean there's more to this thing of what it means to be a, a fully mature disciple. And this, this is for the rest of our life. These things will, it's not, it's not the sum total of everything, but I think much of what this is about or, or the models of what it means to grow maturity can be included in this. This one here is called me effort. No, it's not because <laughs> that's self-effort. This is called like, I had to come up with a term. I can't remember his term. It's called mystery effort or circumstantial effort. It's what, a, what God allows in our life that doesn't clearly have his name on it, isn't clearly a part of my, uh, my stewardship of my responsibility to follow Jesus. And it's not happening in and through the body. It's what happens when you are in your motor car and you're driving to the airport and you realize that you've got to meet somebody at a certain time and the person who's driving you didn't bring their phone and you're starting to feel the panic of I'm going to make it to the eldership meeting last night late and I'm thinking, <gasps> oh, I start to think, Lord, Things are out of my control here, but they're not out of your control. And I don't know 
how to make this. We're all feeling a little frustrated. The elders are feeling terrible because there's a little bit of a weakness in comms, but not like we're still married. <laughs> I'm just, I just want us to understand life has stuff we didn't plan. Nobody planned this, this thing last night, and then we got into traffic. Now, guys, you might be used to traffic. Let me just be really honest. I felt that here I was in last night for one hour and 30 minutes or 25 minutes. I was in the crucible of discipleship. <laughs> the heat was on. But you know what it was burning? My carnality, my, those voices in your head that say, oh, what's going on with it? Look at this bus driver just cutting in on us. I mean, poor Karen, I'm saying, hey, don't let that guy come in anymore. I'm coaching her on Nairobi roads on how to drive. Huh? Karen, Kareen, Karina, whatever. She's wonderful. She said I can call her anything. So I'm starting started to call her Mary. Just like <laughs> Guys, I want to ask you, have any of you never had anything just go wrong in life? And you know what our problem is? We think that that exists outside of this perfect little life that we created as disciples of Jesus. We shouldn't have things go wrong because when we decided to follow Jesus, he's the wisest person, most powerful person. He gives, he just makes life work for me, like my kind of cosmic butler. <laughs> Except he's the one whose eyes burn with fire. His feet are like burnished brass. His voice is like the sound of many waters. He's no one's cosmic butler. He is the Lord of all creation. And our job in here is to rediscover God. And then we, we're back seeing God's at work in my life, in all of life. There's not one part of life God's not involved in. And I'm affirming that. This is happening simultaneously. It's not like step one, step two. It's just a part of seeing how uh, we can see our journey to maturity. The good stuff is there in circumstances of life. The difficult things, the relational strains, the struggles, financial pressures, it's there. Here's the good news. God is also there. And he wants us to find him not just in the history of how we've been saved or in our devotional journal or in our experience of church he wants us to encounter him in all of life. Let's give the Lord a hand. Isn't that amazing? I very seldom do that, but as I'm sitting this, remember, I'm also a disciple. I'm preaching to Rigby Wallace. The hardest person to lead on planet Earth is Rigby Wallace. I, I need help. But this is a, a way to see where our help comes from and how it can come. So, Here's the mini version of why we need this next spiritual gift, because it helps us here. It helps us in our pastoring, help us in our small group leading. leading. It'll help us when it can feel a little thin on the ground in terms of who's available for different tasks in different seasons. So I want to speak to you from about the spiritual gift of exhortation. Now, you might have heard some teachings on spiritual gifts uh, a few years back, two years ago, when I started working on this material, I became convinced that I had never personally ever studied this gift, and I'd never ever preached on it. But I found out I think it's my number one spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. So what you're getting from me today is somebody just living in their gift, uh, carrying their load. What I've been designed to do, yes, preaching and teaching and having a leadership call can, can be part of how that gift expresses itself. But uh, it's quite a precious thing to stand and say, Lord, thank you for the absolute privilege to use one of my gifts to serve your body. So from Romans 12, we read these words from verse 4 to verse 8. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function. Say that out loud. All the members do not all have the same function. 
So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individual members one of another. Drum solo. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, yes, we save by there, but also the gifts of the Spirit are given to us as a divine effort. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise those gifts accordingly. If it's prophecy, then prophesy according to the measure or proportion of your faith. If it's serving, like you just got a just a baptism of energy to serve, then do it with that energy. If it's teaching, then do, do it with the best of your heart. Do the homework. Teach like you are teachable. And you've got something to encourage people in the scriptures in. And then verse 8, or he or she who exhorts in his or her exhortation. That's the gift I want to talk about. Because as we merge out of these COVID times, as one tribe, and, and I want you to remember today, because I honestly feel like this can be a key to become the base church or servant church you want to be in this region. One of your spiritual tools, one of the arrows that God wants to put in your quiver to load in your bow on regular occasions is this particular gift. And I want to connect it to the first talk. If we want to learn not to overfunction, then we're going to need to use the tools God has given us to correctly function. And this gift is a gift that is going to create massive margin in our lives and put the responsibility where it belongs. Because this is a gift we see at work right through the New Testament. And the number one exhorter in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. And if you follow his language, all the teachings where he teaches in all of his letters, the first part is usually what the theologians call indicative truths. All the blessings you have in Christ, all the things God has done for you. He feeds the church that stuff and says, yeah, divine effort, it's rescued you. And then he transitions, usually halfway through his book, he does it in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, now walk worthy of the vocation that you've called. It's an exhortation. Hey, start to walk like you believe that you are one of these special people irrationally adopted. Start walking like that. Put your shoulders back. You're a son adopted by a cosmic glorious king to be his own forever. And then the first sub thing of this is be completely humble and gentle. It's an, it's an exhortation to become a certain kind of person. Because the kind of people we're becoming, we need a vision for that kind of person determines the kind of behaviors, what we'll do and how we'll live our lives. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, after uh, that first exhortation, verse, around about verse 16, 15, 16, he says, uh, instead, speaking the truth in love, it's exhortation language. He's talking to a church with one another. Speak the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into Christ himself, who is the head. From him, the whole body fitted and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love through the work of each individual part. But this is a vision of maturity. We grow up into Christ. And we will not get to maturity until exhortation gets to us in some way. In fact, that's what I'm doing is I'm exhorting. And uh, part of your role as you care for people and nudge them toward Christ in maturity will need this gift. So let's talk about the gift a little. A little uh, introduction to the gift of exhortation. This is very interesting. The exhorter is one who urges another to pursue a course of conduct born of being a certain kind of person. Guess what the Greek word is for exhort? Paraklesis, which is like the other side of the coin where Jesus said, I'm sending you a helper. Parakletos, same word. 
It's, they, they belong together. It's like the other side of this coin. I'm sending you the helper, divine help, the parakletos. But when the parakletos is in work in our lives in the way that is renewing us and maturing us, he also awakens in us a desire to help others and to become helpers that are energized by the Holy Spirit. And we say things in the power of the Spirit. Para means on, alongside. Klesis means to call. If you're an exhorter, you've been called alongside. Now, here's the point. Some of us have been assigned small groups, life groups, ministry responsibilities, and sometimes it can feel like, like uh, you know, it's task-driven. We've got a job to do. Let's strategize. Let's put the meetings in the diary. Let's do our stuff. What happens if we just redefine it? We, we called alongside one another to exhort one another toward this glorious gospel outcome. We called alongside another to encourage and admonish one another to choose a particular pattern of life or perform a particular act. Exhortation always comes with encouragement. Exhortation is more than encouragement. Encouragement can just really like cheer people on in a general sense. Exhortation says, I'm with you for the long haul. I'm in your corner. But I'm in your face to make sure God gets the best that he deserves. <laughs> in a, in a, maybe I overstated slightly. I just want us to know we're not bullies. We're not wearing a sheriff badge when we go to one another. But we all said yes to following Jesus. We're all in process. So the curriculum for our maturity is how we respond to Christ and exhortation is we're calling each other to that in a more intentional way. If you go and read a list of Paul's exhortations in Romans chapter 12, we don't, we don't have them all. He says, rejoice in hope. You've got reason to be hopeful Jesus raised from the dead where people are despairing. It's exhortation. Be patient in tribulation. And we've got to exhort people there. It's not just comfort. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of his all. But sometimes it takes some time, and sometimes the deliverance is into glory. The exhorter is always helping people to have hope, the expectation and desire, and for the expectation of things to ultimately get better, encouraging them to be thankful for and in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Every gift that we read in Romans chapter 12, this is interesting, is gender inclusive. It's not a gift of the elders. It's a gift given to the body by a very generous head. And I'm beginning to wonder if there's a revolution about to emerge in the body of Christ. If we were to say, Lord, fill me with your spirit, and you've asked me to ask for the best spiritual gifts, especially that we prophesy. Lord, thank you for prophecy. It's a great gift. But Lord, I want to ask for the spiritual gift of exhortation. I want to be empowered by the Spirit for this gift to flow through the riverbed of my very ordinary life. Ordinary people, extraordinary God. That's a wonderful, it's the, it's, it's the right kind of tension of relationship. But extraordinary results in people's lives. Jesus did that walking through the seven churches of Asia Minor. Go and do a little study on all seven churches. We can't get into it. But essentially, he got really, he affirmed, he secured them. These are the words of him. I'm in charge of your church. You know, I got you. You're in my hand. I'm not going to let you go. Yeah, but I got this other stuff I want to talk to you about. And usually, he's calling like he did the church uh, in Ephesus to remember where they've come from. You've dropped the ball a little. You've drifted. He says, now, uh, repent. Put the white flag up and say, sorry. You, 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 an exhortation intervenes and says, and makes it about Christ. Doesn't make it, hey, we've noticed you haven't been in church the last three weeks. Sheriff Badge. Attendance, please. No. We're aiming way higher. Because if people feel they can belong to Jesus and not to Christ's body, to get this, 
to experience the regular rhythms of exhortation. They're never going to come to maturity. And our hearts are broken because they need to encounter Jesus. So the conversation is different. It's not ecclesiological uh, faithfulness. It's discipleship faithfulness. Hey, missed you. I sat with a guy the other day, and I had to have this conversation with him. He's now in my life group, our new life group. Sue's a way better life group, group leader than I. I'm just too full of words. Don't say anything. Eh? Anyway, you see that there's the sandwich psychology he brings. There's real affirmation, affirmation, and then exhortation around what. It's like a little bit further. It's not like making people feel bad. It's making them aware of what Jesus deserves. <laughs> and you know, you can say almost anything and you hide behind that. You can tell people. I said to a guy who was pushing back at me strongly, I said, you know, I know you probably have got to behave yourself into these rhythms. You can't behave yourself out of in 10 minutes what you've behaved yourself into, into 10 years, over 10 years. I can say this to you as I'm sitting in front of you. Everything in my heart wants more for you than from you. And I want for you to experience the grace that you're not getting. And it breaks my heart that you're not getting the grace of God. That's why aiming way, way higher than, oh, if you're a member of this church, you signed to be here. When you came in our membership class, attendance was massive. And now you're falling short of the membership standards. No, you're aiming higher. And just when, you do, when the exhortation gift is in play, you're aiming higher. And what do we need as we emerge out of COVID? as we become the strong-based church, as we mobilize instead of monopolize, we're going to need this kind of gift. So, seven characteristics of the gift of uh, exhortation. I'm so glad you've asked this question. What is it? <laughs> we're committed to spiritual growth more than we're committed to anything. We're committed to spiritual maturity. Our matrix is not bums on seats. Thank God when more and more people come, because sometimes that is an adver—it's uh, a credit. The ad advertisement is not your preaching, preacher. Maybe helpful, but sometimes it's the quality of the disciples out there. People say you got something. I want to come and hear what you've got, and uh, let's not overrate ourselves and overfunction that our preaching is building the church. It's a major gift. Fortunately, you've got an incredible preacher in Sean Anderson. <laughs> oh, sorry, Gambonisi. People with this gift of spiritual exhortation, they will visualize progress. They'll be thinking, what, where does this journey take this person? Reads the life stage, self-conscious, world-conscious, God-conscious. How do we nudge them north? What's the next thing? Helps them develop a rule of life. Not rules, a rule of life. John Malcoma talks about a rule is like from a medieval word where you get ruler, but it's actually better described as like a trellis. Your life has to grow against some, something firmer than a vine. If you're a branch in a vine, it needs a trellis. And your trellis are those rhythms, like devotional rhythms. We, we, we can see what it'll take to move people along. People with this gift are able to discern root problems. Remember what we shared? Actual need versus real need. They view trials as opportunities for growth. They, their first thing is, not, oh, shame. Yes, you can be sympathetic and compassionate. I, 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 honestly, we all need to work hard at being compassionate. I'm one of those. Sue has way more compassion than I do, but I have to work at it. But I know this. The way my compassion works for people is I want to help them really find out what they really need. That's the kindest, most compassionate thing you can do for people. So that first sort of level one of empathy where you are done, identify with people's pain, I think that's good. We need to say, gee, I'm so sorry you're going through this. It's so painful. I'd love to help you find God in this. And let's just be before the Lord in some prayer. What are you doing in prayer? You're not asking for a solution. You're just going north and you're inviting God into this journey. Won't you help us, Lord, make sense of this, etc., etc. We remind them those people in crisis, that God works all things together for good. We remind them that we've seen, I've been older, I've been young, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. He's going to come through for you. We whisper the promises of God. That's, that's exhortation, but it's like prophetic exhortation. 
people with this gift, they long to share face-to-face with people. Zoom has been a killer for, for exhorters because they can't, they can't quite communicate the tone, the love, and they can't really be with the person. So in First Thessalonians, this is the exhorter speaking. He says, I long to see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul's saying, I want to be with you to help you grow in maturity. I want to add to you. In Second John verse 1 and 12 and 13, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper, ink, or Zoom. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Folk, exhortation doesn't leave people all bruised. It leaves them with joy because they're assured God is in their story. We're building toward Christ. Spiritual gift of the exhorter usually prefers applying the truth to researching it. They're very happy to read all the commentaries, the guys have done all the work, but they just see what the church needs. And then they love. They say, why reinvent the, the wheel? And uh, they put the truth to work by sharing it in an appropriate way. And the final mark of exhorters is that they desire and insist on unity among the believers. They don't go rogue. They're part of the game plan of a local church. The exhortation is not just what I think people need. It's what's God saying to us as a church. And their exhortation is an echo of the sermon series, of the, the founding values of the church. It is a wonderful thing. And as you are leaders and some of you being uh, uh, appointed tomorrow, uh, this is helpful to, to realize that uh, we're teaming on all of this. Now, how many of you would like me to quickly go through the dangers, the strengths and weaknesses of exhorters? If I do this, I'm likely going to get into trouble because you're going to say, I can see that in you, Rigby, but I'm going to take the risk. An exhorter's strength is they use scriptures to validate experiences. They don't. They're not out to just up people's experiences. They use scriptures. They submit it to the Word of God. Exhorters are willing joyfully willing and eager to come alongside a brother or sister in the body of Christ during difficult circumstances, that face-to-face thing. One of the exhorted strengths is they have like this catalog, this big, in their heart, they've got this big book of Bible knowledge. It's like a reservoir. They memorize on it. They meditate on it. It's like they get into situations. It just bubbles up. God starts to give them those kind of uh, insights and truths that apply to that moment. The exhorter sometimes sees a lot of detail, including the timing of an event uh, as part of God's loving plan. In other words, you go through difficulty, uh, but you're about to graduate to be a lawyer and you've had a hard time as a student. Well, hello, you're going to have a harder time being a lawyer. So, Exhorter just isn't trying to get rid of the problem. It's saying, hey, maybe God's just muscling you up for what's really coming. You know, we're not bailing people out of a tough life. The grace of God's enough to get us through tough seasons. Exhorters focus on balance. They generally avoid extremes, especially in doctrine. Exhorters seem to be able to give thanks in all seasons and circumstances. Exhorters are quite buoyant. They've got a good, uh, uh, their self-leadership is pretty good. They know how to take themselves to Christ. They know how to exalt themselves. And so out of that, they are quite uh, balanced. Uh, And exhorters understand that time, reading and studying God's word brings more than information. It brings transformation. They're not just, they're not purveyors of content. We're trying to connect people to Christ, to his word. And exhorters weakness. Very often, exhorters need acceptance and affirmation. They want to know, how am I doing? Did I do okay? Is it, they, they too want that feedback because 
They want to know that they hit the mark. Now, it's not altogether wrong, but to need it and be needy for it as though it's going to shape your identity, that's the, that's the point. It's a weakness. How am I doing? The real question is, how are you doing? <laughs> Surprisingly, exhorters can be really poor listeners. Because they listen to somebody in the first few sentences, oh, the reservoir kicks in. But they can also become excellent counselors, but it takes time. They've got to be trained to listen well, be quick to listen, slow to speak, speak slow to get angry. Uh, and sometimes we're so busy wanting to bring the truth from our perspective as an exhorter that we forget to listen to their perspective and locate them and, and, and assure them that we've identified and located exactly where they are. Sometimes as they exhort people and they get a bit of success, they the things that have worked begin to be converted into principles and formulas. Oh, this is what worked the last time we did. I'm just going to do the thing and we forget that we're actually building them to our track record. We're not building them to encountering God in a, in a fresh way. And because he so badly wants the scriptures to provide the next step, sometimes they quote scripture out of context and bend the scriptures to their infinitely wise exhorting gift. And they say things that it doesn't really mean. Now, I've said a few like pretty loaded things of saying this is the gift that I think you guys need. I think it's what the whole body of Christ needs. I think I need this gift. I think it is one of my spiritual gifts. I've been frustrated in Zoom times. So I feel like a like a guy let out of jail because now I just can see you eye to eye. I'm just loving the interaction. But um, there's a connection between our overfunctioning and not having the right tools and not depending on the Holy Spirit. And this particular gift, uh, I think, uh, brings the grace of God to bear on lives where we can sleep really well at night. We're not a, we've not abandoned people. And if we have abandoned them, and you've got to abandon them somewhere, then abandon them to the grace of God. And sleep well anyway. Because he's the only one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. You and I need to sleep. And we need to learn how to differentiate. I've been faithful in this moment. And I'm caring for you, but I'm not responsible for you. I'm caring for you. I might be responsible for your life pastorally as a life group leader. But I'm not responsible for every outcome in your life. Then we overfunction. And until the person says, now I'm happy, then we feel happy. No, no. Only Christ can make them happy. And even if their perception is the best outcome will make them happy, they've just discovered a new idol. Because outcomes are not supposed to make us happy. Christ himself in our story is the only one who can save us, sustain us, sanctify us, nurture us. Now, one of the other reasons why I've put this on the table is uh, we have a practice in common ground. Every five years or so, we look at our guys that work really hard. I, do, I hope you know that your elders work really hard in this church. I hope you know you've got an unusual anomaly here. You've got a strange animal in, in Bonisi. He's a bivocational church planter who's leading a team of bivocational guys. They're not rewarded from the church, but they carry the church as much as they carry their role in the marketplace. This is like a sign and a wonder, people. This is incredible that people would spend their life, their one and only life, and what's left of it, toward wanting to see the gospel radiate from this lampstand into the city. It's remarkable. In our common ground story, we worked so hard. In 11 years, we planted. We went from one church to about 11 churches. We've done a few little consolidations. We're back to nine congregations. But those guys who planted the churches have worked so hard so we've introduced a practice that every five years we send our guys away on a sabbatical. It's not a reward. It's not, it's not even a blessing. It may be a blessing, but it's not our motive. It's actually trying to help our church not be led by someone who moves away from a life and a ministry sustained 
by divine effort and renewal and having the margin to be able to be in the presence of Jesus in a new way and to stand and maybe look at some other communities and churches in the world. So we've done that. Sue and I have had two sabbaticals, and I think we're coming up for a third one in about 18 months. They don't know that, but don't tell anybody. (laughs) Our point is it's not a right. It's a gift, uh, first of all, that comes from the governmental authority of this local church, which is the eldership team. They have chosen to partner with Advance uh, in the context of where we stand now. Uh, I'm part of the leadership of the Africa team, the global team. So our global team and our Africa team are partnering with the elders, and we want to appeal to you. This isn't a this isn't permission. It's not a conversation as much as it's a, would you please open your hearts to this, this uh, wisdom and this counsel? And we want to release the Mklabas because they're a hybrid animal to a sabbatical next year, which will include an amazing opportunity to specialize over a nine, ten-month period, if I got the time frames right, working as in a, in a hospital where he's going to new, learn new skills to come back to Kenya. But meshed into that is this commission to find appropriate uh, seasons of rest, renewal, standing outside of any ministry responsibilities. Now, Why would we want this for them? We want this for them for your sake. We want this for them for our sake. We want this for them for the gospel's sake. Because if the outflow exceeds the inflow, it's just a matter of time. The shortfall becomes the downfall. And there's no crisis, and that's the beautiful part of this sabbatical wisdom, is we are This is preemptive. This is saying we want to nurture this lampstand, its leadership team. Now, what would be wrong is if we came up with an idea and said, we want this for them and we bypass the elders. No, the elders are who are carrying the weight. And remember, we're an elder-led church. We're not an Imbonisi-led church here at uh, One Tribe. And as a team, they have got to the man conviction. And as they've asked us and we've interacted with us, uh, we have... Uh, We're busy co-crafting a strategy of what that looks like. There is intentional wisdom. There is serious restraint on on ministry responsibility. Uh, You can never tell a man not to feel responsible and love and affection for the church that he carries in his heart. But ministry responsibilities, uh, I think uh, the elders have heard from me strongly that I think if you're going to go this way, the one thing that's different is because he's both an orthopedic surgeon and a church planter, there's no manual. There's no template for this. We've got to say, what do we do? So in the work field, it's almost like the specialization, getting renewed, adding skills is a measure of a professional uh, sabbatical. Not exactly, but there is something that he will be upskilled in to be able to bring back to Kenya where that particular skill set in orthopedic surgery for minors. What do I call that thing? That stuff. (laughs) He's too clever, this guy. Uh, He wants to put those skills in play here. So he brings them back to the city, to this community that commissions him into the marketplace and into church leadership. And we're working out the fine lines of that. We're coming up with a, uh, what we think is a reasonable uh, uh, budget. The good news is that some of the expenses for that will be paid by this. It's a sort of a working specialization, which is brilliant because he doesn't want to be a burden to the church. But for the rest and uh, renewal side of that, uh, we've come up with a conversation. The elders will be in touch with you around empowering that so that they really are not thinking around money for that. There may well be an invitation for anybody who wants to partner with uh, the church in that, uh, but it's not like an expectation. It's not certainly not on their heart. It was my idea. 
uh, when I chatted with the elders to say, you know, if our elder, if the elders, if the church is going to commission you to this sabbatical, maybe they would want to invest in it, but not as an expectation, more as an opportunity to own this need. And it's not a crisis need, but it is a need to get the best version of what this man, this family are becoming for God. And it's all born in this space, guys. It's not a it's not some professional thing. He's better than all the other elders. He gets this. No, it's also because this servant church is going to continue to grow and it's going to multiply congregations. We want to get the freshest, most renewed version. So, uh, and now I want you to make the connections because I've only shared this part now. But as I've prayed and sought the Lord in this time, we knew somewhere I was going to share this little bit about the sabbatical uh, uh, item on the agenda. That's what got me thinking around uh, the dangers of overfunctioning, because this releases him from overfunctioning and trying to be the hero of the story, but it also releases those who are underfunctioning, who've got leadership gifts, who've got spiritual gifts, who can make a more weighted contribution without looking for positions, just saying. We're going to man the lampstand together. And we're going to trust that the grace of God flows through us together in a way that we, the famous knock-knock joke becomes appropriate. Do you know that knock-knock joke? Knock-knock. Imbonisi. See, you've forgotten already. <laughs> They're never going to forget you, but it's more to do with... It's cruel. It is cruel. <laughs> what I'm illustrating in a silly way is simply this. A key leader out of the story is not the pause button on its mission. Mm -hmm. yes. A key leader being renewed and uh, is dishonored if everybody says, oh, Imbonisi is not preaching. It's, it just would be the saddest, saddest thing you could imagine. But them being renewed and we knowing that and they're in our prayers, our role is to not just fill in the slack, aim a little higher. Let's move this mission forward. Let's be a people that believe that, uh, you know, how, how, how many lead elders' names are in the New Testament? I rest my case. We thank God for the gift of a team leader of elders. But the values and the relationships in this team are outstanding. They're incredibly mature guys. This church is going to fly in this next season. I apologize for my knock-knock joke. <laughs> I think I'll leave it there. Thank you guys, such a joy.